On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We are a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening, I'm Roberta Radovich. Amid the spread of the deadliest drug epidemic in American history, the Monroe County Opioid Advisory Commission will host the 2019 South Central Opioid Summit on September 24th. The South Central Wide Forum will explore why the opioid crisis is so pervasive and solicit input from presenters and participants to identify preventative and remedial measures that can be evaluated and perhaps incorporated to reverse harmful trends and save lives. The synergy created from this event will aid local and surrounding areas to leverage its vital resources, its people, organizations, and infrastructure to develop an effective and compassionate response to this crisis. The theme of this third annual summit is Working as One, the Year of Integration. Guest speakers and panelists include three of the nation's most highly regarded experts, Regina LaBelle, the Honorable Loretta H. Rush, and Jim McClellan. Ms. LaBelle is former Chief of Staff and Senior Policy Advisor in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy during the Obama administration. The Honorable Ms. Rush is an Indiana Supreme Court Chief Justice and National Judicial Opioid Task Force Co-Chair. And Mr. McClendon is Indiana's Executive Director for Drug Treatment and Enforcement our Indiana drug czar. To educate us this evening on the, 20, on the September 24th Opioid Summit and to gain better insight on the magnitude and complexity of opioid addiction, as it's better known, um, we know that it has no socioeconomic or racial boundary, but we've invited Kathy Hewitt, Greg May, who is chair of the Monroe County Opioid Commission and co-planner for this year's event, as well as uh, director of administration for Centerpoint. Uh, Cass Botts, the executive director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance. And excuse me, Kathy Hewitt, you are also uh, the director, the lead educator for the Monroe County uh, Opioid Treatment Center, right? Health Department, excuse us. Thank you for joining us this evening to talk a little bit more about the summit on September 24th. So just to be to be certain, all of you had a part in planning the summit, correct? So who wants to go first? What, what do you want us to know about the summit that we didn't read in our introduction? Greg, Greg they're looking at you, man. I think, you know, the summit is a great opportunity for people to come together, uh, especially locally in the southern region of Indiana, to find out things that we are doing that are working and we're having success with 
things that we've tried that maybe we've not had such great success with, but there's still an opportunity to take away from that. And then what our plan is to go forward. And what about these three guests that you've um, invited for the summit? How were they vetted? And what is it that you're looking to really hone in on, on their expertise? The vetting process, I... Um, went on for a long time, I will say that. Um, there are about 15 other people on the commission who had various ties uh, to um, different guest speakers. Um, I have seen and heard both um, uh, Chief Justice Rush and Jim, uh, Jim McCullen speak before. So for me, they just sort of rose to the top of the list when we thought about folks that would be able to come uh, to the uh, summit and talk about what we're doing in Indiana. Um, I was not involved much with uh, Regina LaBelle, but I don't know if Kathy or Cass were. Well, before we go a little bit deeper into the summit and some of these larger issues that you three so passionately contribute your life and time to, we thought we would ask a little bit about why you do this work. What does it mean to you to be doing this work? We'll start with you. Go ahead, Greg. This work is really important to me because I believe that uh, recovery is possible for everybody. Um, and I think that recovery is possible for the individual based on what they perceive their recovery to look like and not a preconceived notion of the community or a treatment provider that they are involved in. Um, I've worked in community mental health for um, about 17 and a half years and I don't imagine myself doing other work and I have seen people recover and that's why I keep doing this work. Is it is it treated as a mental health issue? It it depends. I think that it it can be treated both ways if you have treatment that is evidence-based and if you're looking at the whole person um, mm -hmm. and not just the mental health or the substance use uh, condition that could cause a person to present for treatment. Okay, so um, what is, if any, personal connection that you have to doing the work that you do? And Cassie, I'm Cassandra. Yeah, so first and foremost, I mean, I'm a person with lived experience uh, with substance use disorder. So what works for me is abstinence-based recovery, but that actually doesn't work for everybody. So my organization is a harm reduction organization. It's the Indiana Recovery Alliance. And harm reduction says that, you know, whether someone is ready for recovery as society wants to define it, recovery as the person defines it for themselves is what we care about. So we make collaborative, positive changes with our clients. And we say, we'll meet you where you're at Whatever you're ready for now, we want you to stay alive. We want you to stay healthy. We want to reduce the negative consequences that are associated with substance use. And that can be health consequences, but also social consequences and legal consequences. Um, so we help our clients out by respectfully collaborating them uh, with them on the changes that they want to make in their lives. I've had over 20 years experience in public health and eight years in social service and in all of my jobs, substance abuse and mental health has been a part of it. So I, like Greg, have seen people, um, well, both 
suffer from the addiction, but uh, as well as I've seen them recover and how well everybody can do and how to put their lives back together. I've also had substance abuse experience in my own family, so I've seen that personally, and I can see how that can tear families apart. So it's always been something that's very important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as with the health department, we also um, strongly believe in harm reduction. In one of my first jobs, I was a disease intervention specialist, and we did risk reduction around AIDS. Um, so this system is really important to us about keeping people safe and healthy until they can seek treatment. So so I'm glad that you said that. You, you said a system, which means there's lots of branches and lots of um, enterprises that go with that system. Do you find that in Monroe County particularly, we are well equipped to deal with the issues um, and presenting the various different options to help a client understand where they are on the recovery spectrum and address and address them appropriately? Or do we have a big system issue? Um, what are your thoughts? I would say both. I think we have an awful lot of support in Monroe County that other counties don't have. Um, so we have a lot of um, different agencies who want to help and who want to do their part. So I think that's a real positive. I also think we're all still learning um, how we can better work together and to make this change. Yeah, I think we have so many organizations and resources in this town, but if we operate in silos, we can't address all of the different factors and variables that can be associated with substance use disorder. So like at the IRA, we follow a biopsychosocial model. And so if there's a biological, psychological, and social component to substance use disorder, we have to be addressing all of those things. And it's very complex. So the resources are available, but we're learning over time how to better work together and connect people um, so that we're not working in these silos. So is is this crisis, is it at the point where it's manageable now? Can can you see light at the end of the tunnel but, uh, through the work that you do? That is a tough question. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk around the opioid crisis nationally and also yeah. locally, but local data tells us that the that opioids are not a major problem when we look at people that present for treatment or people that present in local hospital emergency rooms. It's a part of what's going on but there are other substances involved. Okay, that, that's an interesting point because doesn't the uh, opioid issue take on a life of its own? I mean, once once opioid gets in the door, that, doesn't it become its own issue? You say it starts off as part of something else, right? I think that is a tough question to answer. I'm full of it, them. It's, I will be prepared going forward. Um, <laughs> I think that it's it's hard to say what it starts out as. Yeah. You know, there are certainly folks that choose to use opioids because they're easy to get, um, or you know, perhaps they were given an opioid prescription at some point and then became dependent and decided to keep using that, and then that went from a prescription opiate to you know heroin to a combination of some other substances that the individual was able to pick up. And that's that's why it's tough to answer that question yeah. because as you know, the uh, disease of addiction progresses, you um, oftentimes add in other substances. I think when it comes to where it starts out though, one thing we can pretty much definitively say is that it's very much linked to trauma and 
adverse childhood experiences, there's a direct correlation between um, what somebody's ACE score is. So adverse childhood experiences, your score is higher with the number of those adverse experiences that you've had. And like one example is having had a parent who was incarcerated. So you can see this cycle of generational trauma because incarceration and criminalization of drugs is uh, a big part of the issue as well. Um, we've got drug laws that are trying to criminalize our way out of the crisis, even if the health sector is saying we've got all of these resources available to treat this. There's kind of a conflict of interest whenever we are still having laws that are criminalizing people for their disease. And it didn't help that communities were just overwhelmed by the marketing uh, of, this, of these drugs. Um, which kind of brings me to something else. A couple of months ago, I read an article in the Washington Post and they actually set up a database and you may already know about this you go and punch in your your state and your county and it'll tell you how many pills were distributed in your area over a six-year period so for the state of indiana from 2006 to 2012 there was two billion billion with a b 123 million prescription pain pills supplied to indiana and that was enough for 52 pills per person per year and, and I kept reading, and uh, in Monroe County, the same period of time, 39,351,000. That was 42 pills per person per, per year. Some of the other counties had more, uh, a, lot, a lot more. Some almost double what Monroe County had. But I also read that Monroe County was uh, higher than the national average. And so is, is that borne out in the people that you deal with? That, that you uh, treat? If you're talking about um, if you're talking about like opioid deaths or something like that um, Monroe County is actually in the middle of the counties within Indiana so mm -hmm. we're not at the top. So. Okay. Hmm. Greg? I'm not sure. I mean they're I think is evidence to support that there was a problem with overprescribing, which is probably the numbers that you are getting at. Yeah. Um, I, you know, think, uh, and this is my personal opinion, there's probably some research to support that, but, you know, drug companies really marketed uh, these types of drugs as uh, working to take away pain, but there was little to no dependence or tolerance. And, you know, if you think about a time that you went to the emergency room or to your physician, probably five or seven years ago, you know, they would ask about pain, which in some regard became the fifth vital sign. Um, and medical professionals were, um, you could say, dinged if they were not treating pain as a vital sign. Um, and because of that, I think it led to some of this overprescribing that we experienced where you would go in and say that you had pain. And if that's a vital sign that we're monitoring, our job, you know, as providers would be to alleviate that pain and make you feel better. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with um, planners for the uh, September 24th Monroe County 2019 South Central Opioid Summit. And we're speaking with some of the members from the Monroe County Opioid Advisory Commission. And I wanted to know a little bit more about who else we can expect at this summit. Um, who, will, who else will be joining you in addition to the keynote speakers? 
Well, we're actually focusing on two systems um, this year. In the first couple of years, we did a lot of education and explored a lot of different areas. This year, we're focusing on two systems, the judicial system and the workforce, and how we can um, better make an impact and, and try different things that are going to or make a supportive recovery community in those areas. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Cass and yeah. Greg? Uh, I'm fascinated by particularly the workforce creating pathways uh, for. Sure. So the um, I think simple way to describe why we chose workforce as an area to focus on is people need to work, and people who use drugs. Um, have a difficult time finding work, especially if they have a um, criminal past that, uh, you know, comes up during the course of a background check. So, you know, we are really happy to be able to share um, projects that we have locally here in Monroe County um, and talk with employers who are giving people opportunities um, for employment and not focusing on you know the issues that would typically come up in a criminal background check, um, we will talk about a um, project that's happening in Bloomington. That's a partnership between Centerstone and the City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department. Um, we're offering employment opportunities uh, to people um, who you know could be in the early stages of recovery or could be experiencing homelessness um, because. We know that people need to work and life is expensive. And when you have background check barriers that prevent you from getting work, you get frustrated after a period of time and then you could stop looking for work. Um, we will hear from um, a group out of Richmond um, from the Belden Corporation that's going to talk about a program called Pathways to Employment. Um, that is a program that if someone has a um, positive pre-employment drug screen or a positive post-accident drug screen, they're offering uh, treatment and then the opportunity for that person to return to work. Um, we'll, we will also hear from some small business owners in Bloomington about how this crisis um, has affected them locally and what they're doing to give people um, opportunities for gainful employment. That's what I was I was wondering about that and how if if people aren't employed, they can't take care of their families, if they can't take care of their families, they're out on the street and their kids are not in school and just right. the domino effect that happens. Cass, you mentioned something about criminalizing our way out of this problem. So what can uh, the criminal justice system do differently? Yeah, so I personally am just altogether against the criminalization of um, low-level drug possession, honestly, the criminalization of drugs, period. Um, but my organization takes a more radical approach, I suppose. Um, I think that some of the changes that we're talking about making are going to be good steps forward. There's law enforcement assisted diversion, um, which is where instead of keeping people in this cycle of arrests and jail time, we instead divert them to get the resources that they might need if they qualify. Um, and uh, that would be qualification based on some kind of a rubric or set of criteria. Um, but I'm also all for community assisted diversion, which is let's have community members when we see people in crisis, not call the police on them, but see if we can assist them ourselves and if it's reasonable to do so. That's a big ask. 
It really is. So what we're working on is finding other organizations and partners who feel the same way and seeing what kind of education campaigns we can work on and how we can come together for focus groups and forums and see what the community has as ideas. Because one of the basis of my organization is like nothing about us without us. The people who are going to be receiving the services need to have a say in what the services look like, need to be able to say, here are what my needs are. Um, and if we can listen to the people who are actually affected, like I'm someone with lived experience, um, one thing the summit has done that's really good is try to include people with lived experience with opioid use in the summit. So we've got panelists and presenters who actually, you know, have been a part of this and have gone through it themselves. So I'm success really proud. Stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, definitely <coughs> success stories, but success as the person defines it for themselves. You know what I mean? So how was law enforcement, um, responding to the diversion approach? I think in Monroe County, we are- And is it working? We are really fortunate to have a group of law enforcement officers who know that diversion is needed and that this is not going to be a you know problem or a crisis that we're going to arrest our way out of. Um, we you know have had great success um, with the uh, Bloomington Police Department and some of their efforts around um, diversion and that, you know, when they encounter someone and it appears to be a resource issue, you know, that they're working to get them connected to a treatment provider or to get them connected to um, the staff over at IRA and really looking at what is the resource issue, what is the issue that the person needs help with and how to, you know, to cast this point as a community, how do we wrap around that person and meet their need and not make it an issue of, you know, criminalizing that person's behavior because they're not able to pay rent or they needed food, you know, because the children were at home and they were hungry. So do uh, police officers need additional or specialized training to be able to identify whether or not it's, it's a resource issue? Or, or just to, just to uh, think, be able to uh, approach it from yeah, with, with so that version. Yeah, so additional training is always going to, you know, be necessary. Um, we have a great group of officers here who understand that there are resource issues and we are working to meet those people's needs. Now, that does not mean everyone in every law enforcement agency is on board with law enforcement assisted diversion or any other type of diversionary efforts. What we're doing as a part of the summit is we're bringing in national experts who have successfully uh, implemented law enforcement assisted diversion programs in their community to have a um, roundtable talk at lunch about what is necessary to make this happen. Um, there will be... Um, um, discussions at the summit around law enforcement assisted diversion, where we are as a community now, what we hope to get to, and what are the steps that need to happen to get us from where we are now to how do we have a fully functional law enforcement assisted diversion program. But there's there's definitely a need for education and resources and support um, because we're, we're, we're changing the culture of the community about how we deal with these types of issues. It's no longer we're going to call the police and the police are going to show up and, for example, help Cass because the neighbors keep calling the police on her. I so, think one thing, excuse me, that's important to remember is I was speaking with the national um, 
one of the national experts in LEAD last year, and he told me that every community's LEAD program is different. So every community builds a LEAD program that's gonna work for them. So I know that the local law enforcement is working on that now, so I think it'll be really exciting to see that. They're also working together, city, county, city and county government, as well as local um, Centerstone, the hospital, and other social service providers are working on a crisis diversion center, and I think that's really exciting. So you've touched on something, Kathy, that I was going to ask is there are different models around different parts of the United States. And is there an agency or is it something like the summit that brings together those various different models into conversation so that Monroe County can figure out, you know, maybe what to expand or best practices? Best practices. Very good. That's exactly what I was wondering so there, um, there is a, um, I don't know the correct term, but I'm going to say a group of lead professionals that um, provide technical assistance for folks who are just beginning lead programs. Um, and then there is, I think maybe it's a national conference that's happening in November. Um, it's called PTAC, but I'm not sure what that stands for. Um, I was just looking up the info for that conference last week, but that really is a convening of folks who are doing diversion type programs in their community and what are the best practices. And I know that we're not, um, for our listening audience, I don't want to make anybody think we're implying certain things um, about what's happening or not happening. But if you could share what your uh, <coughs> blank check wish lists might be to fill out or enhance some of the services that we do have available in Monroe County right now? I would like to see a broader range of harm reduction services be offered and those services be um, accepted by the community as a um, way to help people recover. There is a lot of shame, discrimination, and stigma, um, particularly when you talk about um, substance use disorders and mental health conditions. Um, and in my line of work, that's oftentimes why we see people delay getting treatment and sometimes not get treatment because it's it's really hard to um, you know hear the things that people say about people with substance use disorders and um, with mental health conditions and that's for me i mean that's probably the biggest battle in my career because daily i hear some of the most disparaging remarks that people you know say about people in our community um and at the end of the day like everyone in Mon in monroe county is our neighbor and i think that we should be doing everything we can to help them um and we have a ways to go before we're there and be a healthy community from all angles of what it means to be a healthy community. Yeah. And listen to people when they show up and tell you, this is the problem that I'm having and this is this is the need. Um, this is the thing that I need help with. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, in the work that all three of you do, you, you, you wanna help everybody, right? But from your experience, is there a racial element to this? Yeah, so, 
I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, like, especially when it comes to the criminalization, there is a racist history of drug policies that has preceded what we're now facing, which is a crisis that we're paying attention to because white posterity is finally threatened. So you've got the story of the football player who got an injury and then he got prescribed opioids and now he's uh, addicted to heroin. And once the white communities started having increasing rates of this issue, we started to increase our services. So um, the Indiana Recovery Alliance has adopted the North Star Statement of the Harm Reduction Coalition, which says we can't adequately address the harms of opioid use disorder unless we also address the harms that have been associated with those um, racist drug policies and the racist history of the way we treat the issue in the United States. Um, so one of the things that we do that I'll mention is we offer overdose prevention services. And so we hand out naloxone, which is the opioid overdose reversal drug. Um, in 2016 to 2017, I looked up some stats and black folks had the largest increase in opioid overdose deaths among any racial group. So I just want to make it known and said that anybody can come to me and receive naloxone at the Indiana Recovery Alliance. If you know anybody who is using opioids, please come get naloxone and get trained on it because that is how we can start just by saving lives. Cass, thank you. We're going to go ahead and take a musical break for just a second. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that, the implicit relationship between some of the service providers that are prescribing these medicines.
reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. It was covered by many artists throughout the years. This is not a song about suicide, as has been hypothesized. It is a song of hope and courage for individuals who have experienced adversity in their lives but have overcome it. Speaking of I Can See Clearly Now, one of our special guests this evening has a very special story, her own story, her personal story about recovering and choosing how that looks for her and plugging into the resources and the community that she would need to be able to be the person she can, who can give back and support others through their journey now. Would you like to share a little bit more with us? Yeah, so I do have a history of chaotic drug and alcohol use um, for about six years. It started in college um, and then extended until I was around 24. And that includes uh, pretty much any drug under the sun that you could name, but including opioid use. Um, And, you know, I try to think about my story and Sometimes I can think that there was just this epiphanous moment where I realized what I needed, but no, harm reduction was really included along the way. Um, I think it involved getting connected to my community. I started volunteering while I was still in chaotic drug and alcohol use. I started volunteering at the Shalom Community Center, which is a resource center for people experiencing poverty and homelessness. And uh, I think you know that was a positive change that I made in my life, and harm reduction is all about any positive change. So yeah, getting connected, finally feeling like I wasn't isolated, connecting with people who kind of understood me and were like me and knowing that I wasn't alone and didn't need to be ashamed, like all of those things led to me finally, uh, I guess having the realization that I could, uh, I could do it, like that I was worthy. Like that was a big thing, realizing that I was worthy through the connections that I made through the resources in this community. And in the African-American community, we often talk a lot about purpose, that we are here. We each have our own little purpose in this big thing called the beloved community, as Martin Luther King Jr. used to say. So I love that you're talking about community ultimately and that we're talking about community ultimately supporting people as they're moving through a very challenging and difficult time in their lives. Kathy, you were, uh, you mentioned something about uh, people being offered services and then running afoul of the law if they take advantage of those services. Right. Um, Syringe uh, service programs were first allowed after the HIV outbreak in Scott County that started in 2015. Um, Public health departments are the ones that could apply and were approved to run those. However, um, it is a felony for our clients to have the syringes that we give out during the program. Um, We have a contract with the Indiana Recovery Alliance to operate the program for us, but like I said, if clients take advantage of that, they can actually get arrested. And that just doesn't sound right for a public health program to have those type of consequences. So what happens after someone uh, gets arrested for trying to do the right thing? I mean, what, what's the next step? Do they have any options uh, after that? Our local prosecutor uh, says that she will not charge anybody who 
goes to the syringe service program. But again, the laws kind of tie our hands because as, as part of the program, we are not allowed to take names. We are not allowed to take identifying information. So that makes it a little bit more difficult for to be able to do that part. But that's under the Indiana state law, we can't do that. So our local prosecutor is trying to help us. It's not that fortunate in other counties. So. Right. Some, uh, I would imagine some prosecutors are not, uh, so what, what's the word I'm looking for? Compassionate. Right, well, it's all a part of health. If we can make sure that everybody gets a clean uh, syringe for every time they use, we're preventing disease. We're keeping them safe, we're keeping them healthy. And that's very, very important. So without going too much into all of the sensational news that we're all privy to lately, but still talking about how physicians and pharmacies are complicit, um, what is their role in helping reverse or fund programs and trusts and those kinds of things? I think uh, when Greg talked about earlier, it originally started with um, Purdue, or I don't remember, pharmacy, but they were sending out, they were telling doctors that yes, you can use this for pain, and no, it's not addictive. And so doctors started to believe that. We have learned since that it's very addictive. Um, doctors are really, I think, trying to rein back. I saw some stats today that said that um, opioid prescriptions have dropped by 35% in the last five years. So uh, they are really trying to hold back and look at other methods of, of handling pain. Now, Purdue Pharma uh, manufactured OxyContin. I is that the most addictive or one of the most addictive opioids on the market? I have no idea. Oh, no. So I would say opioids are all addictive because of the mechanism uh, by which they work in the brain. And I think we stigmatize some mm. opioids over others. So you've got street heroin, but then you've got hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone, methadone, which is used as a medication-assisted treatment, actually, Opana, Norco. Point being, yeah, Tylenol 3s and 4s. A lot of people don't know that those are as well. Um, fentanyl is something that's coming up a lot in the news sensationally uh, and that's because a very small amount of fentanyl compared to say heroin um, can cause overdose um, so there are certain ones that are stronger than others um, but they all are addictive by the by the neuropsychological neurochemical mechanism of addiction if that makes sense Tylenol 3 and 4, are those prescription or over-the-counter? They're usually prescription. They're prescription. Okay. For pain. Yeah, when yeah, I hear Tylenol, I, I just like remember the work. bottle in mm -hmm. the store, you know. Yeah. I don't know if it's over-the-counter or not. What's fascinating to me is the other side of that conversation. And I'm hearing a lot of conversation among especially African-American women that they are not being treated, they are pain management and begging for pain management in the form of pharmaceuticals is kind of the other swinging end of the pendulum. It's like, where's the middle with this? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, you know, something that I hear a lot of as well is there are people with legitimate chronic pain issues who still need treatment for their ongoing chronic pain that will be with them, you know, for the duration of their life. The challenge is, is that, 
you know, now it's like, oh, we've we've overprescribed, you know, opioids and all of these other things. So now we're not going to prescribe at all. Um, so, you know, like African-American women and other people, you have this group of people who are now suffering um, and there's not really any middle ground um, from a uh, pain management perspective in most instances. That is, is really confusing because, if, okay, if they're going to uh, stop prescribing, then how can you single out? one demographic group and say we're not going to prescribe to this group anymore that, that just make I know that's what's happening but it just doesn't make any sense uh, you know another racial element to the whole thing yep um, so let's talk about intervention services what can family members do you know um, if someone you're really close to um, you don't want to call the police on them because you know, you know, this is totally out of character for them. So what's the best way for a family mem- member to intervene uh, in, in one of these uh, cases? I think historically there was sort of um, something that came up that was this myth of tough love being what works. And that was when a family member had um, someone that they loved experiencing addiction who they then decided, you know, if we give them tough love, if we just kick them out of the house or, you know, tell them that they can't have a relationship with us until they get their act together, that's what'll work. And actually, we've learned over the past decade, uh, at least, that that really doesn't work. So a compassionate approach, I think, would be identifying the resources in your community, um, such as in Monroe County, the Indiana Recovery Alliance or Centerstone, depending on where the person's at in terms of their um, desire for treatment plans. And like getting them set up with um, someone like one of my staff members called a a respectful collaborator. We meet with you and we decide with you, um, you know, what steps forward you can make determined by what you actually want for yourself. So family members can be understanding that this is a complex issue and complex issues don't have simple solutions. Um, And family members can be educated about what resources Monroe County has. Then you can help identify with your family member, with your loved one who is experiencing substance use disorder, some of the positive changes that they might be able to make, which can include um, inpatient treatment or it can include a harm reduction approach like the services that we offer at the Indiana Recovery Alliance. So is is the the road to recovery, does that still include the uh, philosophy that a person has to want to be helped? Intrinsic motivation is highly correlated with um, lasting positive change. So yeah, I think if someone doesn't have that intrinsic motivation, which you can determine through something called motivational interviewing, it's a technique that counselors and therapists know, um, that's one of the best indicators of that positive outcome. And what if you don't necessarily have a loved one or somebody particularly in mind, but you want to help. You were breaking down these walls of stereotypes and perceptions. How how does the community get involved? How does the average individual get involved? I think that it's it's extremely important to know the resources that are available in your community that can meet the needs of people who need help. Um, you know, for me, when I'm talking with folks, you know, who appear for treatment, it is very important for me to know what that person wants and what that person expects. 
Um, there, you know, seems to be this myth that, you know, people will show up for treatment and they're kind of in this period of chaotic drug use and we're going to like give them the magic prescription and it's going to fix the problem. That doesn't work. Um, in my opinion, that does more harm when you tell mm-hmm. someone to do something that they don't want to do, um, you know, because, uh, to what Cass was saying, you push that person further away when they identify you as a support person because nobody wants you to tell them something that they want to do that they don't want to do. Um, and then they you know, begin to feel alienated and further and further away from anyone who would be available to support them. So in your experience of working with uh, people who need help, um, do you see that people... Um, there are more people with family members, with family support than without? I would say in the work that I do, it's about half and half. Um, I think that, you know, family wants to be supportive, Mm -hmm. um, but there tends to be this concept of, you know, tough love and really strict boundaries, and then it leaves that person feeling alone. Um, You know, so perhaps at the beginning of, uh, you know, treatment, yeah, they have this group of people that has, you know, brought them in for treatment, maybe coerced them in some way to get treatment. And then as that person explores, you know, their, um, you know, substance use disorder or other issues that they need help with, and they're not making progress as someone expects them to make progress, then their family kind of pulls away, um, you know, because they're not meeting these you know, sort of arbitrary guidelines that had been set in the family's mind about this is how this person's going to recover. Um, And I like to use the example of, you know, kind of putting someone on the recovery train at point A, and then they get off at point B, and everything's better. And, you know, there, there was never a tough point in that person's life, you know, where they had to struggle again with chaotic drug use or they had a resource issue and they just sort of continued down the path. That's not the way that this disease works and that's not the way that people recover. And the expectation that that's how it goes and we're going to, you know, set these very, you know, tough rules and guidelines like, well, if you don't do this thing that I'm telling you to do, then I'm cutting you out of my life. That doesn't work. It does more harm than good. I think Cass said something earlier that's really important. Um, When she talked about uh, volunteering at Shalom, um, she built those connections and she said that people accepted her for who she was and she was able to make motivation out of that. So I think that's so important. Accept people as they are and then help them go where they want to go. It's almost counterintuitive. It's giving somebody even more space and more room when it seems our culture tells us to constrict and to kind of bind that person. Um, It's interesting. I've got one more thing if we're talking about how family can support people, especially with opioid use disorder. I mentioned it earlier. Overdose prevention programming is so important. And at the IRA, One of our goals is to get naloxone or Narcan into the hands of every single person who uses drugs and their family members. Because what happens is someone overdoses in the home, their family members are in possession of and trained on how to administer naloxone. 
And then they save that life because they're able to respond in that moment um, as the overdose has occurred. So I just want to hammer home that it's like really important for everybody to know how to use this, to have it on hand and uh, to come get it from us. And we will absolutely teach you how to use it. It can take three minutes tops. Yeah, And we have some at the health department as well. So, so before a person is actually uh, addicted to, to opi- opioids or any other type of drug, what are some of the telltale signs that we can look for that, that can uh, warn family members that this person is about to make a wrong turn? That's a great question. There are a lot of warning signs. The most common ones tend to be a change in the way that you know the person. Um, You know, so the person may start being late for work, not missing work, missing, you know, personal obligations, uh, withdrawing socially, um, you know, kind of keeping to themselves and, you know, staying at home, not going out. Um, I think I said missing work. work. Um, And then, you know, working on spending a lot of time uh, finding resources to obtain the drug, secure the drug, or, you know, find money uh, to pursue that. So at that point, the, the treatment or the way that you would address it is different than someone who is who is in a full scale addiction. So how, how would you address it? So, so you, you uh, mentioned some of the symptoms. So from my perspective, that would be, you know, a conversation that you would have with someone like, I'm noticing these signs and I'm concerned. These are resources that I know of that are available in, uh, you know, the community, if it's this community or the community where you are really having that compassionate response and being understanding about the things that you're seeing and not becoming um, accusatory or demanding about what the expectation is. What's striking to me is some of those, quote unquote, air quotes, symptoms sound like depression. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I know depression is very stigmatized. But even in that stigmatized space, we say, are you okay? Are, is there anything I can do for you? Can I get you someplace or refer you to some service? We're, we're very compassionate. So it's, you're driving home this idea that's very important, even for me as I'm sitting in this room talking with you, is giving that human being their dignity and their respect Absolutely. to sort of ch- that that space to check in with you without accusing them of something. Yeah, there's, you know, something that that we have not talked about that I talk about with people regularly is that when we talk about substance use disorders to people that are not in the line of work that we do, you know, kind of the general public, there's oftentimes this idea that this is a moral failing and that, you know, people uh, did not try hard enough and if they would hang around other people or if they would leave town and you kind of pack up and go to a new area, that all of these things would be better. And when we have that conversation, it's it's the wrong conversation to have. You know, this is a issue that requires treatment. It, it requires all types of different interventions. And sometimes those interventions have to be tried more than once. And this notion of you know, it's it's a moral failing. You've not tried hard enough. Or if you would only do this thing and not hang out with these people or, um, you know, 
go to church as you know something that we hear uh, you know used as a way for someone to, to help heal themselves, which may very well be possible, but it's not the only thing. Um, you know, so considering the whole person and all of the needs and not like you have to do this thing that I told you or you're failing. And you said something that I thought was pretty interesting. You said it may take more than one intervention. So um, should you, should a family try intervention after intervention after intervention? I mean, until it stops. You know, my role as a treatment provider is to offer choices when that person shows up. It's not up to me to determine, you know, if you're worthy of treatment or the previous five times that you were here, you didn't try hard enough. So on the sixth time, I'm going to say, uh, I don't really think this recovery thing is for you. I think that we should always be offering choices whenever that person shows up, no matter how many times that they show up. But at some point, you, you're going to run out of choices to offer, right? I think that's where harm reduction can come in because if abstinence-based recovery just isn't working for somebody, there are other options to improve their quality of life, even if they're continuing to use. Or there are options like medication-assisted uh, treatment, people being on methadone or suboxone. Like Those things are highly stigmatized even though they're evidence-based and they're shown to work. And someone might need to be on those long-term or for the rest of their life, but their quality of life is drastically improved and they're able to live a better life within their community. So I think being open to more than just abstinent-based recovery is really important, and that's where the concept of harm reduction comes in. Recovery can look like uh, many different things to many different people, so we can't just get stuck on just one model. We have to find what works for that person. Yeah. Yeah. So in our last few minutes, um, you might have another question, William, but what I wanted to know are what are your anticipated next steps? I know that the two core conversation pieces will center around judici judicial rights mm -hmm. as well as workforce um, opportunities. But what are some next steps that you're hoping for Summit participants to plug into or engage? I think my hope, you know, really is to get more people involved at the community level. Um, you know, people who have an interest or people who have a loved one or people who have a story to share. Um, you know, this this really is an issue that, in my opinion, is going to take the entire community to um, make better. And I think the more people and the more experience and especially the more people that we have with lived experience helping uh, drive the work that the Opioid Advisory Commission is doing will uh, serve us well. Okay, um, we have about a minute and a half left. Um, I kind of get the sense that you've probably answered quite a few questions for our listening audience. I know you answered a few for me that, that I had. But before we go, I'd like for each one of you to just tell us how uh, we can get in touch with your organization. Sure. So um, you can get in touch with Centerstone at www.centerstone.org, uh, and you'll find a, the uh, directory for any office in Indiana. Um, if you're interested in getting in touch with the um, Monroe County Opioid Advisory Commission, if you have an interest in joining, um, you can just search us on Facebook. Uh, there's a Facebook page, and then you'll be uh, given the uh, email address, and uh, someone will respond. 
Yeah, and if you're interested in what we do at the Indiana Recovery Alliance and learning more about harm reduction, we are at indianarecoveryalliance.org. We're also on Facebook. We have open volunteer hours on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 and other volunteer opportunities. So check us out there. Um, and there is an email address and contact info there if you'd like to learn more. Our thanks to Kathy Hewitt. Oh, excuse me, Kathy. Let us hear from you, my friend. You can find out more about the Monroe County Health Department at www.co.monroe.in.us. We also have a page on Facebook, so we'd love it for you to check us out and see what we have to do. And now we will thank our lovely guests, starting with Kathy Hewitt, Cass Botts, and Greg May, all who are participating as planners for the Monroe County 2019 South Central Opioid Summit. This event will take place on September 24th. Tickets for the third annual event are are $35 and can be purchased at Eventbrite at www.eventbrite.com under the third annual South Central Opioid Summit. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we would like to hear it. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address, once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department. Tonight's board engineer was Chantal Lafontaine, and our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiem, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm William Hosea. Please tune in next Monday, September 23rd at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.